Read your Bible. Say your prayers. Come to church. Tell the truth. Don't break the law. Don't sleep with anybody that you're not married to. Don't get drunk. Don't do drugs. Be nice. Love people. It's easy when we think of love and realize that it's something that God wants us to do. It's a part of living a Christian life. It's easy to think of love as just one thing in a long list of things that God tells us to do. So God says, do these things, don't do these kind of things. And we tend to think of love as just one of those things that are on the list of Christian behaviors and Christian virtues that we ought to strive for. Some of us may think that love is one of our better qualities. Well, I'm doing pretty good at loving people, I think. I may not be so good at all those other things, but I think I'm doing pretty good at love. Some others of us may think, well, I'm not really that great at loving people. People are kind of hard to love, you know, And uh, but, but I'm pretty good at some of those other Christian things. I want us to realize that when we read through the New Testament, what Jesus and his apostles teach us is that if we don't have love, none of the rest of it matters. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, listen, you could prophesy and speak in tongues. You could give everything that you have to the poor. You could even offer up your body to be burned as a martyr. And if you don't have love, none of the rest of it matters. We might say, you could memorize hundreds of scriptures and you don't have love. What difference does it make? You could have a spotless church and Bible class attendance record. You could be here every time the doors are open. And if you don't have love, what difference does it make? None of the rest of it really matters. You can know every doctrine. You can know what's right and what's wrong. You could have all of it licked on all of the other areas. And if you don't have love... None of the rest of it matters. That love is not just one of the many things that we're supposed to do. It is the greatest. It is the most important. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 22, Jesus is asked which of the commandments in the law, and there were a lot of commandments in the law, which commandment is the most important or which is the greatest? And Jesus says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says that these two commandments, everything in the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments, that these are the greatest. So we could very much say that Jesus taught that the greatest commandment was to love. To love God with everything that we are. We talked about that a couple of months ago in our home series, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. That that's the greatest. And the second is so right there with it. It's so dependent. They, They go hand in hand like a hand in a glove that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Everything depends on these two. These are the greatest commandments. And then in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 12, one of the scribes comes up and asks Jesus, what is the most important of all? And Jesus, of course, says, hear, O Israel, The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
there is no other commandment greater than these. So we might ask, why? Why are we going to spend a whole month on this, Wes? Why are we going to talk about love? And we all know that, don't we? We know love is important because if it is, as Jesus says it is, if it is the most important, if it is the greatest, if there is nothing else that God tells us to do that is more important than this, then we ought to talk about it a whole lot, shouldn't we? It ought to be something that we come back to over and over again because it's so very easy to forget what we're supposed to be all about. It's so very easy to get caught up in all of the other things and say, well, you know, but I'm doing pretty good at all of this other stuff to kind of take a step back and say, but this, this, If nothing else, this ought to define God's people, that God's people are supposed to be a people of love. We are to love our Lord, our God, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So if somebody asked you, how are you doing at that? How well do you love people? How would you answer? Some of us would say, we'd be real honest, and we'd say, I'm not very good at loving people. You know, people are hard to get along with, and I'd rather just be by myself. I don't really like people, and so it's really hard to love people. But some of the rest of us might ask, which people, right? Which people? I, I mean, you know, I, because who I love, and how much I love them, and how well I love them, and when I love them, a lot of times depends on which people we're talking about, Right? So if you just ask, how well do you love people? We might think, well, I mean, some people I love pretty well, you know? I I mean, I love people that live in my house pretty well most of the time. And, you know, the people that live next door to me, maybe, I I love them pretty well. But then you start branching out further than that. Well, that's a different story, right? How do you define that? Which people do we love well and which do we not love so well? What about the people that uh, don't look like you? or don't vote like you, or don't think like you, or don't act like you. The people that don't do what's good and right, the people that don't do things the way you think they ought to do things, the way the people that don't have the culture that you have, or live where you live, or act like you act, or look like you look, or speak like you speak. How well do you love people? And then if somebody told you, as Jesus is going to tell a lawyer that he speaks to here in just a second, if somebody were to tell you that your eternal life, that whether or not you live forever with God, and we all want that, don't we? We want to live forever with God. We want to experience the resurrection from the dead and live forever with God. That whether or not you live forever with God depends on whether or not you love God. People. And when we ask, which people, right? Which people do I have to love? Which people does my salvation depend on? Well, which people do I have to love? And when do I have to love them? And how much do I have to love them? We want to know what, what exactly does that look like? Do I have to love all the people all the time to the greatest extent? Does my salvation depend on that? Well, let's look at the text. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. Luke 10 and verse 25. Behold, a lawyer stood up. Now, this lawyer is an expert in the law of Moses. Not how we typically think of a lawyer in our culture. But this is a religious expert. An expert on the law of Moses stands up. And Luke says, 
to put him to the test. He's going to test Jesus. He's thinking in his head, maybe I could trip him up. Maybe, uh, let's see how he answers this one. Let's see what he says is the most important, the greatest. Let's see what he says I must do to inherit eternal life. And so his motivation is one that's a negative one. And Luke helps us out by explaining that to us and says that the lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? There's an implication there of what has been said in the other gospel accounts, the most important commandment, right? I mean, Teacher, you believe in eternal life? You you teach people that they can live forever? That there will be a resurrection? So tell me, give me a list. Give me a list of the most important commandments that I have to do all these things in order to inherit eternal life. What does that look like? What am I supposed to do? What's the greatest? What's the most important commandments? Which ones are you supposed to keep if you want to live forever? And so Jesus responds to him, and I love how Jesus turns the questions around on the questioner, don't you? He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer, probably never passing up an opportunity to show off what he knows and how he thinks, answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Good answer, right? Jesus said, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? And if we were to just stop here at the story, we might think that Jesus is teaching some sort of a works-based salvation, right? He's saying, what do I need to do to live forever? What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what do you think? And he says, okay, well, I think you need to love God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, Okay, that's a good answer. Do that, and you will live. Let's think about that for a second. Now think about verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. Now again, Luke helps us out a great deal here because he shows us what his motivation is and why he says what he's about to say, why he says what he says next. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Right? Same thing we would do, isn't it? If somebody says, your eternal life depends on how well you love people, you say, which people? Right? How much? What time? All the time? All people? Or, or is there a group? And, and he's trying to justify himself because he realizes that either justification or condemnation depends on the definition of the word neighbor, right? If you define neighbor very narrowly and you say, okay, well, if my neighbor is, or if you define neighbor as my fellow Jews who are law-abiding, as I consider law-abiding, if you consider my neighbor to be that small group of people, well, yeah, I think I love them pretty well. But if my eternal life depends on me loving anybody outside of that group, that's a whole nother question. And I'm sure the lawyer, as, as a lawyer would be, as an expert would be, as a religious debater would be, I'm sure he was prepared to debate with Jesus, depending on how Jesus answered that question, he was prepared to debate with Jesus and tell Jesus, no, I don't have a legal obligation to love those people. 
These people, oh sure, yeah, I guess I have a legal obligation to love these people, but I don't have a legal obligation to love those people. And I'm sure that when he said, oh yeah, well, who's my neighbor? That he thought Jesus was going to say something to define who the neighbor was, and then he would be able to come back and say, oh no, 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 let's define neighbor much more narrowly than that. There's a there's an implied second option here, isn't there? So when he asks, who is my neighbor? There's the implication that he also wants to know who is not my neighbor. Who do I not have to love? Who do I not have to show mercy to? Who do I not have to care for? And the lawyer apparently feels very justified in where he's been drawing that line. To say, yes, I'm legally obligated to love these people, and so I love these people, but I'm not legally obligated to love those people, and so I don't love those people. And feeling like he's doing God's will, and he's right with God, and and he everything is good for him, and that if there is an eternal life, he will inherit it. Why? Because he's keeping all the rules. He's loving the people he's supposed to love, and, and not worrying about the people that he isn't legally obligated to care about. And so his question, again, with the wrong motivation, trying to justify himself, is, who is my neighbor? And listen to how Jesus answers this. Now, we know, if we've read this before, that we're going to read the, the, the Good Samaritan story. And we've probably all read this and heard this story a hundred times or maybe a thousand times, and we think we know it. But I'll tell you, this story has to convict us, maybe even condemn us, before it can comfort us and instruct us. So even though you're familiar with it and you know what Jesus is about to say, I want you to listen. And listen with the ears of the lawyer because we might be more like him than we imagine. Verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. Now, in order for this story to make sense, that there's something going on in those religious people's minds that's a lot like what was going on in the lawyer's mind. They are justifying their decision not to help the man that they see bleeding on the side of the road. We don't know what their justification is in their mind, but somehow they say, I'm not legally obligated to stop and help this man. And he might be dead. I wouldn't want to defile myself by touching a dead body. Uh, He might be about to die, and I don't want to have that on my hands. And so however it was, they justified their decision to leave him on the side of the road. Now, it might be hard to kind of put ourselves in this situation, so let's kind of retell the story in a modern-day parable, okay? Imagine a guy is, is driving his nice car, in a bad neighborhood, maybe downtown Dallas, maybe some other big city, driving his car in a bad neighborhood, and he stops at a light, and suddenly these guys jump out of nowhere, and they rip his door open, and they beat him up, they carjack him, they take everything that he has, they take his car, they wail on him and beat on him until he is nearly dead, and he's bleeding, and he's torn, his clothes are shreds, and they leave him in the gutter, bleeding and dying. And if somebody doesn't help him, he's going to die. And then two Christians come by. Maybe one a preacher. You know how those preachers are, right? The preacher comes by and he sees the man in the gutter. And somehow in his mind, he justifies 
not stopping to help him. Maybe he says, this is a bad neighborhood, and if I stop, this might happen to me. God wouldn't want this to happen to me, so I'm not going to stop. And then maybe an elder comes by and does the exact same thing. And somehow, in their mind, they're able to say, I'm a good, loving person. I do what God wants me to do. But this situation, I don't have to stop and help. I'm not obligated to stop and help. God would give me a pass because of whatever reason. And somehow, justifying their own behavior, they go on their way without helping. But, verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, now we know about the Samaritans, don't we? The Samaritans were a group of people that lived, Galilee was in the north part of of Israel, Uh, Judea was in the south part during Jesus' time, and in the middle was Samaria. And the people that lived in Samaria, the Samaritans, were a group of people that, that many hundreds of years before Jesus had been Jews that lived there. And when the, the Israelites were taken off into captivity to Assyria, the, some of the Jews were left behind. Some of the Israelites were left behind. And they intermarried with Gentiles. And, and then their religion became something of a hybrid between uh, Judaism, between the law and paganism. They developed their own temple, they developed their own worship, they developed their own priesthood, and so they had their own way of worshiping, and they were a mixed race of people. And so the Jews hated them racially and culturally, socially and religiously, and they wanted nothing to do with them. They despised and hated the Samaritans. And so Jesus says, okay, so you got this guy laying in the gutter, and two good religious Jewish men go by, and do nothing. They see him, but they cross over to the other side of the road and they go around him. And now a Samaritan comes, and as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Again, it might help to put it in modern type of language. So you have this man, bad part of the city, laying in the gutter, nighttime, bleeding, dying, cold outside, having his car and everything he owns stolen, and almost dead. And two Christians, a preacher, an elder, go by and do nothing to help him, somehow justify that behavior in their own mind. And then, let's say, maybe a Muslim immigrant comes by. And he sees him in the gutter and he stops his car and he gets out and he gives him first aid and he bandages his wounds and he puts him in the back seat of his car, bleeding all over the interior of his car and he drives him to the hospital and he stays with him through the night and he pays the doctors and says, I will take on his bill. Let us sink in for just a second. Verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because that's not the question we thought Jesus was going to answer, right? We thought that Jesus was going to answer the question that the lawyer posed to him. Who is my neighbor, right? And by implication, who's not my neighbor, Who do I have to love? Who am I legally obligated to love and take care of? And who am I not legally obligated to take care of? And Jesus essentially says, that's the wrong question. 
You're asking the wrong question. The right question is this. Who proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Look at verse 37. So the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You see, when you hear a parable, when you hear a story, you automatically put yourself in the story, don't you? That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to say, who am I supposed to be in this story? And here he's talking to this religious leader, this religious expert, and he's telling him a story about a common ordinary Jew and a priest and a Levite and a Samaritan. Who do you think he's going to put himself in the shoes of? Not the Samaritan, that's for sure, right? Probably not even the beat up guy. It's going to be either the priest or the Levite. Because they think like he thinks. They do things like he does things. They justify doing what is ceremonially right and what is morally wrong. They they justify their behavior and they cross over and don't take care of somebody that's in need. And so Jesus turns the whole thing around and doesn't answer the question, who am I supposed to love? Who's my neighbor? Who's not my neighbor? Who am I obligated to help? And he asks, who proves to be the neighbor? And the answer really is, not you, right? Not you. Not the people that think like you and act like you. You didn't prove to be the neighbor. It was the guy that you didn't expect. He proved to be the neighbor. So I think in the end, this parable proves one thing. That loving your neighbor is not about who they are, but about who you are. Jesus doesn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? He answers the question, will you prove to be a neighbor to those in need? Will you show mercy when somebody needs mercy? Will you show love and compassion when somebody needs love and compassion? Jesus has already said that if you want to live forever, go love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And now, this man, who thinks he's been doing a pretty good job of that, has come face to the face, come face to face with the reality that he hasn't done that. That he hasn't proven himself to be a neighbor. That when it comes to the greatest commandment, to love God and love your neighbor, he failed and is guilty according to the law that he has not loved his neighbor as himself because he hasn't proven himself to be a neighbor. Now, what about us? Do we find ourselves in the story? I think that this story, again, has to convict us, it has to condemn us before it can comfort and instruct us. Have you done exactly that? Have you passed by when somebody needed help? Have you not shown mercy and kindness and love and justified it because you said, in this situation, I don't think I'm obligated to love them. Don't you know what they did to me? Don't you know what kind of person they are? They don't look like me. They don't vote like me. They don't talk like me. They don't think like me, whatever it is. And we said, I don't think I'm legally obligated to love those people. And we have justified ourselves and said, I stand right before God because I think I'm doing pretty good at loving God and loving my neighbor, when all along we're not. We haven't loved God with all of our heart and our mind and our soul and our strength, and we haven't loved our neighbor as ourselves. I think if we're honest, we will say, we've all done this, haven't we? Drawn a line in the sand, 
And whether we admitted it out loud or not, said, I don't really have to love that person. These people I have to love, but those people I don't have to love. And Jesus says, we are guilty. So what do guilty people do? Well, Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 18, the only way to be justified before God is to throw ourselves on his mercy and to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I think we need to admit that, don't we? Before we can learn anything else from this story, I think we have to admit, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, because I have not loved my neighbor as myself. I have not loved you with all my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength, and I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. I've justified walking the other way. I've justified looking the other way. And I need you to show me mercy. And then when we realize our place in the story, when we realize that we're guilty and we're convicted and we allow God to extend mercy to us, then in a sense, we become like the man on the side of the road who mercy was shown to. And Jesus becomes the one who shows us mercy. And then when Jesus picks us up and cleans us up and helps us and loves us and shows us mercy, then we can go out into the world and love our neighbor as ourselves, not because of who they are, but because of who we've become in Christ Jesus. We go out into the world and we help people, not, not because we legally obligated and say, well, you know, if I help you, then I go to heaven. If I don't, I don't have to help you. Nothing like that anymore. Now we help because Jesus helped us. Now we show mercy because Jesus showed mercy to us. Now we heal and we comfort and we show compassion because Jesus has healed and comforted and shown compassion to us. We go out and we love our neighbor because of who we are in Christ Jesus, not because of who they are. But the first, the first step we have to take is to admit that we need the mercy of God, that we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves, And that's really what we're declaring when we're baptized into Jesus, isn't it? God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it's only when in humility and poverty of spirit we receive the mercy and grace of God, we're raised up from that water of baptism, then we can go out and we can, like nobody else on the face of the earth, if Christian people would believe and walk in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we can love our neighbor as ourself like nobody else because it's not about who they are. It doesn't matter if they look like us or talk like us or vote like us or act like us. It doesn't matter. We love our neighbor as ourselves because of who we are in Christ Jesus. We love our neighbor as ourselves because of what Jesus did for us in the cross. If you're not in Christ yet, then you're still laying in the gutter. Allow Him to pick you up and clean you off. Allow Him to heal you and help you. Be cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ so that you can go out tomorrow and you can love your neighbor as yourself, not because of who they are, but because of who you've become in Christ Jesus. You just need to get back on that track. If we can pray for you or help you, we're here for you. There's a room in the back. The elders would love to meet with you, pray with you after services, or you can come forward now as we stand and sing.